to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal with your host, Kevin Neutron. Broadcasting from a secret underground lair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A gigantic middle finger to everything that is rocking about music, rock and roll, and corporate power. The thing is, though, if you don't laugh, you're going to go on a killing spree to shop and nail it. Confidence of a hero or a fool, I wasn't exactly certain which. Could not be more professional. It means something. You know, that's my take with what's yours. Protonic Reversal! That's like a science thing, right? Science thing, science place, the scientific fact. We are all up in your face. It is time once more for the one, the only... Proton Reversal. Welcome to it. So today we have a special guest. Of course, we always have a special guest. This one is uh, Mr. David Scott Stone, aka the uh, the Brian Eno to the Melvins, as Dale Cover once said. A very uh, fantastic fellow who's done a lot of stuff. He's played in a lot of awesome bands, done a lot of things. Very excited to be speaking with him. Uh, so we're going to, before we do that, this is a little housekeeping. If you are a patron of the show, thank you so much. Patreon.com slash ProtonicReversal. A dollar a month gets you all the episodes sooner rather than later. Uh, certainly not compulsory. <laughs> However, it's always appreciated. RadioNeutron.com for the archives. Uh, thanks for all the props and feedback on the Jerry Sally episode. Uh, part two. There's actually two of them now. That one has winged its way into the Patreon, but it is not as of yet uh, available in the free feed. We still got some uh, catch up to do. So anyway, uh, that's that. Let's do the title track, and uh, we're going to come back with uh, Mr. Dave Scott Stone. Toi et moi, comme ça. Entrant pour toujours. 
Okay, so those are some selections from the David Scott Stone Plays Modular Synth record, which comes from the the long tradition of things being what they are named for, uh, which is to say that it's David Scott Stone playing Modular Synth, so it's it's in the title. You, you know it's in the title. It's like Planet of the Apes or something along those lines. Uh, and with us now, we have none other than uh, Mr. Dave Scott Stone. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? Very good. Uh, the better question is, uh, how are you doing? What have what you been up to in this quarantine time? I honestly help for these times. I spend a lot of time alone anyways, working on stuff, working on other people's projects, working on my own stuff. The last 10 years, I really got into the studio, learning how to mix records, uh, mic drums, uh, produce 
other people. So it's hasn't been much of a change. If anything, I've put more time into doing a meditation, getting into meditation again. And I've been trying that a couple of times a day and kind of working. And when I say, you know, spiritual life, I don't mean religious or anything like that, but just sure. trying to get really, really a good get through this whole like time period. A lot of people are changed. Their lives have changed dramatically. Mine has changed less dramatically in this time period. So I want to be available to like be there for people that are suffering and uh, going through a hard time. So I've been really trying to stay connected to community of folks that I've had, you know, relationships with. So I want to be in a good place so I can be more effective towards people that might be having a hard time with this, you know? Absolutely. And and that's that's a very important thing to remember, too, is that it isn't just yourself and how you're dealing with quarantine times yourself, but everything's an ecosystem. Everything is uh, connected. And it's, it's sometimes important to check in with folks, even like the people that you consider, quote unquote, strong people or whatever along those lines. Uh, it's, very, it's, uh, it's almost vital, I would say, at this point. I mean, when we get out of this, it's not going to be the same. We're not going to immediately go back to this life of, like, going to shows, going to school. Right. Uh, things are going to be a lot different. I want to be prepared to, like, be in a good place no matter how things look to be all right in the new world that we're coming into. So, really, that comes down to, like, like my sort of spiritual center. And that might sound goofy and new age. I don't mean it like that. But, you know, some people find that in, like, surfing or playing music or, you know, going on long hikes or having sex or whatever. But I'm really, really focusing on my meditation and taking, and luckily in this whole time, I have got work. You know, do, I've been doing some mix for people, this thing called the gender, and we're sending that off to get mixed to, with somebody else. So it's, it's making stems for them. I spent most of last year working on that record. And this is the first full length I've done for a band where I recorded everything from the drum tracks to the bass, the guitars and tons of synth layers and syncing it to like electronics, like 808 drum machines, 99 drum machines, sure, yeah. vintage synthesizers, and new synthesizers. So I'm not like an analog purist. I like using really great plugins and soft synths. Like I could, I have a modular system, but even with a wall of modular, I couldn't get um, what some things, like some soft synths allow you to do. So I, I want the best of both worlds. Well, yeah, and it's... And of course, for those that are uh, listening in on the, on the live stream and the and the podcast, you're not necessarily going to see this, but uh, Dave Scott Stone says this as he's in front of a, an entire uh, music store full of awesome synthesizers uh, in, in the background. But I, I think that you bring it up an important yeah, point. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, <laughs> although none of them are for sale. It just means it's a very nice display. And the the thing with that is, yeah, I think. A lot of evening. Right, 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 right. It, it's 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 a collection built from uh, love and dedication. Uh, but it's also, I mean, would you say that? I mean, that's got to be like a best sound wins kind of situation, right? When you're putting together something like that, like you know, if you can come up with something in a, in the in a plugin or, or patch or something that like kind of soft synth, it's not necessarily going to be something where you you feel like well, you have to get the analog purity, right? No, no, no. There's some things like FM synthesis that just sounds to me better when there's no noise floor, and soft synths allow that. Uh, with FM, it can be brighter than what was capable of, like when FM 
FM was being developed in the late 70s and early 80s, you know? And that's where you get that really super as beautiful or harsher than anything with FM synthesis. Right. Well, and that's, so So, talk to me about, uh, you know, the, the last thing I played was something off the play's modular synth record. Uh, talk to me about your relationship with synthesizers and your relationship with music now, as opposed to, you know, coming from the more uh, grindy, grimy, post-punk, noise, rocky sort of world uh, to now. Like, how's that relationship been and how's the path been for you? I'm a guitar player. At the end of the day, I'm the gu- a guitar player. Um like driving out to uh two hours to get like a twenty dollar small stone or micro synth or something like that um great so (laughs) i wasn't really into synthesizers and all uh but i played in some bands i played in this band called slug and i had a bunch of effects but i loved mike kunker from god silo and what he did i was one of two bass players in this band and i was obsessed with guitar effects pedals and um so giving out picking up all these different effects pedals and then plugging them in i remember being in the studio my friend damien romero was this amazing like harsh noise artist Mm -hmm. he was the other bass player in the band I was hooking up these pedals. I put them in the wrong order. It was sort of like putting the distortion after the reverb to create these soundscapes. I would just twist these pedals, and then I took a rap pedal and used a Y cable, and I got to oscillate. And Damien was like one day, like, going, hey, it's, you know, how you use your pedals is like a modular synthesizer. Right, because you're kind of doing synthy sort of sounds with these guitar pedals uh, just by chaining them together in weird ways, yeah. And we were recording uh, three man themes, which was a record. Uh, yeah, I was using this to create like textures and not even playing the bass through that. And I played bass more like a guitar. Because another band I played guitar at that point. But you know, cut to a few years later, I done some touring with Melvin's, and I made you know I saved up a bunch of money. I made from doing Melvin's Phantomos Big Band. Right. And I came home from like more money that I'd ever had in my bank account ever that I earned. Moga just released the Voyager and I was working at Royer labs, building microphones at this point. Okay. I went to the NAM show. I saw the synthesizer, like when all the 90s stuff, I mean, I liked Aphex, Autecra. Sure. Yeah. Square push. I didn't have a history like dance music and I wasn't even looking for it. The electronic records I bought in the nineties and Aaron's records and the classical other, the other classical bins were like $2 Bernard Parmigiani records or Alvin Luce, all like avant-garde Columbia uh, music house. No, the Columbia school of music really, really, like the experimental 60s stuff so mm-hmm. sure, i yeah. thought i could do my voyager and so i didn't even have a car at that point and first time i've ever hooked up a company uh, hit up a company dropping like the band name that i played in was i wrote them it's like and Roy, ran royer labs told me okay yeah really they'll work with you they're not going to give you anything for free you know you're not trent Reznor. Or <laughs> yeah, and, there's, uh, there's a gradation of scale it, there yeah 
Yeah, 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 for sure, sure. And um, so my boss there was just like, ask for an artist accommodation deal. And so I asked for that deal, didn't even have a car, and they gave me like quite a good deal on the Voyager that I could, I could totally handle it. Okay. Cool. So I bought the Voyager from there. There was a bunch of what do you call it? Uh, jacks on the on the back of it, and I had no idea what CV or gate was. <laughs> and yeah. I online, and yeah. I thought, wow, this is really really cool. And so I started looking at modular sizers, and it started with me buying some kits from this company called Blasset because I built amps for Soldano before, and I'd work as a wiring tech. I wasn't afraid of soldering anything, so I bought these kits. Last one thing called the Time Machine. Right. That was an analog delay and some other things. I was using the XY pad on the Voyager. I thought, oh, wow, I can play something or hold down a note and adjust the time or the feedback of the time machine. So I bought a bunch of Blasset modules and my friend Joey Karam from the Locust started getting the modular synth too. And he started working with this format called Synthesis Technology. They do a com- it, was, it was a company called MOTM and they were much larger formats. They used quarter inch jacks. And I checked out his system, and the oscillators were so big sounding. The filters sounded amazing. There was multiple choices in filters, mm-hmm. and I started buying these kits. And whenever I got any money from touring with different bands, you know, when Melvins were doing music with another Phantomos Melvins big band run or touring with Joe Biafra, I could save up some money. And these were really short tours. Through all that, I mean, buying MOTM kits. Right. And for you know, I, I, I did, had no idea how to record music. I was in this four-track person in the 90s and all. So that was sort of the transition. You know, I um, uh, my friend told me to get Logic and get an audio interface. And I was so naive and so green about this stuff. I had no idea how these things worked. I got this laptop an audio interface. And every time I recorded, there was all this digital distortion because I was cranking the levels on it at that point you <laughs> know just doing everything wrong but yeah <laughs> yeah you know it's like Quote loving Mas- <laughs> yeah 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 and like loving masana mersbo incapacitance uh salmania you know you know i thought oh this sounds really really cool I started experimenting with recording and multi-tracking. And what I'm talking about in a few minutes took years for me to figure out. Because there's a discovery process. You're personally going through everything, uh, you know, piece by piece and figuring it out, figuring out what works for you. Hey, this sounds cool. Hey, you know, oh, this does this when this happens. You know, it's a a process for you. It's not something that happens immediately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... There wasn't, like, modular synthesis is like a genre now. You know, there's all these, there's so much modular synth stuff out there. At the time, you know, there wasn't a lot of people. The only two people, the only two people in the modular synthesis in Los Angeles, that was Joey and Ged, or M. Geddes. They had smaller systems. Joey was taking his system out with, with the Locust. He built me a case so I could travel with it. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, that's, that's important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I just started recording these experiments. Uh, it was all just really super, like, you know, my ear was towards uh, Dick Rajamaker and all sorts of bleep bloop, like, you know, or sorts of sounds. It was more like composing. So once I learned how to edit audio, I would spend hours putting together these compositions. Sorry, I have to plug my phone in. Oh, that's fine. And, uh, Go ahead. And I would just spend 
I got into the editing process of that. I would spend hours putting these sections together mm-hmm. of sounds that I made. So this record plays a modular synthesizer, which I wanted to make, give it a super dumb title. So you knew I wasn't using like an SH-101 or right. very... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I wanted to make it clear this was done exclusively on a modular synthesizer. Well, I think and, that, that, that's genius, though, because like I said, it, it 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 fits that criteria of the Planet of the Apes rule, which is it's it's what you what you see in the title is what it is. It's the th- it's the thing that you think it is, and I think that's that. I'm actually a big fan of that. I think that's hilarious and also awesome at the same time. And there should be. A I'm glad there there was humor in it, you know. Yeah. But I, but I, there was no humor in the music, you know. I mean, I actually wanted to make something kind of serious, right? That, of course, yeah. You know that, but. At that whole time period, when that came out, the world, the world had changed quite a bit. You know, electronic music and dance music and club music mm-hmm. had completely, you know, it was the time period of, of Electro Clash, Electro, uh, Ed Banger sorts of music, like Justice, um, right. you know, DFA was getting off the ground, and, you know, Juan McLean... Um, that would be foreshadowing. You know, <laughs> yeah. One from Six Spinning Earth Satellite became yes. a legitimate house music producer. Which is crazy and, for people that don't have that frame of reference and context. But I remember when that happened, I was like, wow, really? Is it the same guy? <laughs> but it was, it was kind of like, oh, cool. Good for him. That's cool. That's awesome. Killer. Well, at that time, you know, what I was doing was completely not, you know, it didn't, I, I remember, like, I had two guides that brought me into electronic music, or else I would be completely, you know, uh, I remember being super excited to do Melvin's Fantasy uh, show that Mike was curating, and we were one of the bands playing, That's the right. big band. Yeah, yeah, the, the, and, and you're talking, yeah, of course, about the the legendary Melvin's Fantasy big band, there's a... Uh, the, the record that came from it, there was a, the tours, like it was a quite the production. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was incredibly intimidating to be around such high quality musicians and really, really, I don't know, just great, great people. And, uh, and I felt very supported. I felt like a lot of those people believed in me and, you know, it was completely telling me. Um, but yeah, you know, so I, I wasn't around a lot of people that like dance music. You know, I knew about things like Mouse on Mars mm-hmm. and Oval. Super like, you know, and I thought that was like dance music because it had a pulsing beat. Uh, by two guides that brought me to electronic music. One was my friend Nate Harrington, and he was into things like compact records, which was minimal techno. And I remember even hearing at the time and just, it felt like, well, wait, wait, when's it going to get weird? When's it going to get glitchy? And when, you know, because I didn't hear. <laughs> when's it going to get all crazy sounding? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't hear for like IDM, you know? And, um, but then I found like a few artists I liked on the, that label on, on, that he was giving, sending to me. My friend Tyler Pope, who was the, one of the founders of Chick Chick Chick. He was a bass player of LCD Sound System. And he turned me on to all sorts of amazing music. Um, you know, he taught, he showed me what was so great about Daft Punk and all the things that they were influenced by. Um, and he, you know, things like spank rock, 
or the field. The field was revolutionary, you know, just loops with like a pulsing beat. And, you know, I still wasn't listening to like real like club music or anything. Um, Cause I just wasn't around people around that time. Also, after coming back from Melvin's Panama stores and jello stuff and, you know, just Melvin's world of things. Um, I was going to the smell a lot. So I was around bands like, smell. No Age. yep. Yeah. You know, bands like no age, Mika Miko mm -hmm. health, um, uh, a Vagoda, the Meishi. Meishi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was connected by t uh, television, just like all sorts of like amazing. And this was still like rock and punk based sort of stuff. Right, yeah. Like even, uh, the, even the more, even the more electronic -y stuff was coming from a very rock place and it, it, it was, it was, it's coming from a different mindset is kind of what we're trying to establish here. Well, my band for the, the aughts, zero, the uh, first, the first decade was Liars. I loved, loved, loved the Liars. We were wrong. So they drowned. That record is my favorite record of that 10 year period. Yeah, it's a really yeah. unique and interesting record. Real, real interesting. An amazing record. I love the liars still. And, um, you know, um, it's, so that's kind of where my headspace was, you know, I wanted to like walk the line of like really eggheady electronic avant-garde, harsh noise, post-punk, just, you know, there was like the energy of like wolf eyes and black dice who I loved as well. Right. And, you know, there was, uh, Damien was doing great music, Damien Romero, John Weiss were, were, were keeping down the, the harsh noise in Los Angeles. And it was, it was a really great, interesting time. And, um, you felt like you could do anything like Los Angeles was really, really on fire during there, that time period. Well, sure. Yeah. And even, uh, coming in on tour and stuff, it was very clear that there was a vital scene of just real interesting bands that all kind of, you know, knew each other. They played each other's records. They were at each other's shows. Uh, it definitely had a, a, a vibrant community feel as much as being a vibrant community. Um, and so that's, um, and you're talking about like post get hustle at this point, right? Uh, kind of like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Just to give time and place, this is uh, early, early ish 2000s. Uh, and the, 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 the tours with the Melvins where you were kind of like the second guitar player, uh, texture noise dude uh that was 2000 2000 2000 2001 somewhere in that neighborhood right yeah 2000 buzz asked me to join the band coming back from a trip from alcatraz on january 1st 2000 that's how my uh, i went to see the melvins play uh new year's eve of 1999 into 2000 and uh, the next day we all went to alcatraz and on the way back Buzz asked me if I, what I would think about trying to play guitar with them and do what I did with Buzz effects pedals. I played with my effects pedals when I play guitar in a music stand. I have an AB box. Right. So I'm playing, I can loop stuff and then process it and just let go of the guitar and like make noise and stuff. And just take the signal and kind of run with it. Right. Sure. And, and it, it's, it, it's a something, it's a very cool visual too. Like it's very uh, mad scientist looking as a show it's very practical for me being on my knees for years on the ground like 
just twisting things. I wanted to be able to play properly and affect the sound all in real time. And um, I did not see that coming at all when Buzz asked me to do that. Uh, and initially I was like, no way, there's no way I could do that because I didn't have it in me to believe in myself that I could do that. Mm, interesting. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'd seen the Melvins more than any other band. I still have seen the Melvins more than any other band in my life. And I love them. I had a personal relationship with them and, um, Buzz was absolutely a mentor to me. He turned me on to so much music and he changed my life in so many ways. Um, you know, that's how I found out about the Gang of Four, right. the uh, Solid Gold record, or My War by Black Flag. Right, sure. Or, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like I wanted to buy a Rodan record once. And Aaron's record, I had like Rodan or Roxy Music's first record. And Buzz is like, get Roxy Music. And I got it. And, you know, um, yeah, he's, uh, he was a very, he's guided me through a lot of things. And uh, so I didn't know how to take this seriously, you know, and also I just did not have confidence to feel like, oh, I could play in this band. I didn't know how it was going to go. And he was very encouraging to me. Uh, I went over to his house. We played some songs together. He showed me how he did his riffs and like learned some hiccups. And I, practice every day playing songs that i knew and loved like in the room with mar uh, with with kevin and because kevin was just starting to play with them as well and dale but i played a few days before kevin came to town and just playing with them and playing through night goat all the way right right you know <laughs> yeah whoa this is incredible because the energy i would feel from whenever i would go see them it was so powerful you know i'd watch from the side of the stage they're just so good. I saw them in November on the eve of my birthday, and they're still just so, so good. Playing along and knowing where the changes were and going through, like, learning the riff to revolve or doing uh, Halo of Flies. And it, it, was, it was overwhelming because it felt so good, you know, playing with Sure. And it's and it's something where you have the context for being a fan of what they do and and knowing them as the institution that they are. But then also you're being asked, which is something that Buzz does quite a bit with people that get brought into Melvin's. He wants you to do you also. He wants you to like not like like, hey, play this like this. It's like, no, he bring he brings you in because he wants you to do what you do for them. And that's a huge I mean, that's got to be a huge uh that's gotta be huge. That's gonna, <laughs> I guess that's the end of that sentence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I always tried to do what was right for their music, and there was a lot of room to do things like, uh, like when we were covering Cherub. I have a Boss Super Distortion Feedbacker pedal, so I could get a drone going on right. and then process it with my micro synth. Like have a drone throughout the entire song, just be holding down that note and like running it through a bunch of pedals and all and like messing with the sound to just have that go on the whole time. Or if I was doing some textural stuff, Buzz went to a guitar solo, then I would go back to the guitar and hold down the riff and all. Right. You know, like on Revolve. So he could do the solo. Droning sound going and it kind of fills it out. And it's, it's, uh, you know, it allows to do things that you would only, 
really be able to do in the studio live by having that. Yeah, nothing but encouragement and support from them, you know? I mean, playing with Dale, like, I knew Dale lived in San Francisco at that point, uh, but I saw Buzz pretty regularly, and, you know, him and I worked on stuff outside at his place and all, mm-hmm. and, you know, it was, it, you know, it was... He encouraged me to have more faith in my own abilities, you know, and uh, forever, forever grateful for that Aries man. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also you've you played with Unwound uh, during the Leavesturn Inside You era. That was the the bigger band where Brant was playing keyboards as well. And like they, they just decided that the like the arrangements that were so lush and so huge on that record it needed more people. You need more than just the three people, the core members of Unwound to do that. And that's, that's another example of you coming into an established entity and institution, if you will, (laughs) in some case, and, you know, being, being trusted to do the thing that makes it awesome. And it's, it's interesting because there's multiple instances of you doing this. And it's, it's sort of like your value added proposition in, in all of these. And, it's a. I can't think of anyone else in that genre of music. Certainly, that part of uh, that part of music that has been afforded those opportunities and produced those results. So, uh, the question there is, what was the experience of uh, playing with Unwound? Well, Unwound was my favorite band of the nineties. Uh, yeah, same. I might have seen. Yeah, yeah. I, I might have seen more shows of them. You know, it's anytime they would come to Southern California, I would go to every show. We wound up becoming very good friends. Uh, they would stay with me for when they would come to Los Angeles. I felt a very strong sense of community and understanding with them. I loved Justin's guitar playing, Sarah's drumming, and Vern's amazing bass playing. Yeah, man. And yeah, they were working on Leaves and Turn Inside You. And Justin, this is where more of what working with the Melvins did for my life. Going from the bands I'd played in to... You know, Slug and Get Hustle played with Unwound. Get Hustle played, I think we might have played shows with Melvin's, I think at some point when Mackie was in the band. Um, and Buzz was going to take Get Hustle on tour when I started playing with the Melvin's. But they all wound up moving to Portland and and uh, uh, while I was touring with Melvin's. So we didn't do that. But playing with Melvin's, showed a lot of people my abilities and it really gave me a lot of credibility towards you know melvin's is love they're a loved band they are they are a great band they're already legends you know after like being a band for a couple of years they were very very influential to not only music culture um you know, what they did for, you know, there's kind of Nirvana without the Melvins. And what, of course, yeah, yeah. Nirvana was a paradigm change to culture. So they're directly influenced for uh, changing sort of a sensibility of what the 90s were about. Yeah, like when sort of for a brief period of time, the weirdos were allowed into the... Uh... <laughs> To the conversation at a larger level. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, Justin was a good friend of mine. And Justin uh, went 
on tour with, uh, to do merch with the Melvins. He'd known them. He'd known them for a number of years. And he needed a merch person. I thought, great, I'm going to hang out with my friend who's one of my favorite guitar players on this whole tour. And I felt so weird. It's like, wait a second, what am I doing playing? Justin should be playing. <laughs> so that's where my confidence level is. Right, and right. that's <laughs> like trying to work on, you know? And um, and it's 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 a lot different now. I've, I've kind of been focusing on these sorts of things, like the spiritual shifts in me, just not to make... It's such a big deal, but um, it was fun. It was really, really great touring with Justin. I was listening to Leaves and Turn Inside You. Justin and I had a lot of similar tastes in music. We love things like Sonic Youth and avant-garde music and, you know, PIL, all sorts of exotica, just all sorts of, yeah, Justin and I had very similar music tastes. And he asked me, he told me that he was thinking about expanding the lineup. And I knew that I was only going to play, I, the Melvin store I was going to play was only supposed to be like one leg. Mm-hmm. And then we wound up going to Europe. And then we wound up doing another tour of the States. And then I did one other tour. But so I knew it was going to uh, end at some point because Buzz was just trying to shift things up. Right. And surprise. And so on my one was to go on tour uh, the spring and summer of 2001. Again, I was like, whoa, are you kidding me? That's crazy. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> seems okay. I said, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I said, yes. I went up to Olympia and I tried to live like an Olympian. Um, I was staying at the farm where Justin was living and. Uh, we were practicing all the time. I was going to this bar called the Spar and waking up the next morning having no idea what I did the night before. Always a good time. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, and, you know, Olympia was like never, never land for me. All my favorite bands, well, many of my favorite bands were coming out of there. Um, I loved... Unwound, Carp, Fitz of Depression, Bikini Kill, um, you know, bands like, you know, that Vern would release, uh, The Thrones. Let's not forget about The oh, Thrones. Of course, The Thrones, yes, The Mighty Thrones. Yeah, yeah. And um, so Olympia, I remember I'd go there and I felt like I finally had met sort of like my people. Right. Wildly creative, you know, kind of like not egotistical, like (laughs) grounded, but just doing cool stuff, like as with some degree of regularity. Yeah, and even though I was involved in like the Los Angeles music scene, I never, you know, I didn't really like hang out with like Rage Against the Machine or Weezer or anything like that. And I, I remember seeing bands that became massive, huge bands playing jam jam, kind of like a couple hundred people, you know, right. but I wasn't in any sort of professional music scene, you know. I remember, uh, you know, I knew Beck and his brother Channing a little bit, before, well before Loser, when they used to go to the pick-me-up and all, but, you know. Those early days, I, yeah. Oh, yeah, I always felt much more home when, like, Jared was in town or Mike Kunkka or, you know, I knew there was going to be a Frumpies tour 
in the next couple of weeks and all, you know, right. and even like, yeah, so you have that to look forward to and kind of schedule around and yeah. 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 So it was all of a sudden being in Olympia and playing in the coolest band in Olympia to me, that is. And it was, and like, you know, once again, it was like one of these like, Oh my God moments when we were playing abstraction right? or like, or like, uh, uh, Valentine car, uh, uh, Valentine, the canteen or whatever, the suite you know? of songs on fake train. Yeah. 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 I was like, Oh my God, I am playing this or like, well, this is crazy and stuff like that. And again, it was like, I loved it and respected them so much. I wanted to support what they were doing, you know? And like, I mean, I was very, very close with all those people. I still love and am close with, all the unwounds today, you know, Justin, this house that I'm in right now, Justin, when he lived in Los Angeles, not all this gear was there or anything, but um, Justin lived in this house for a number of years. I live in my grandmother's house. I've turned into a studio for myself. And, uh, you know, still in, in regular contact with him. Uh, and so we did that tour, then September 11th happened, 2001. We were on tour during that time period and we were playing some really, really good shows. And we had our big show at Bowery Ballroom during CMJ on September 12th, 2001. And uh, we played in, I forget, it was, a, it was the town that Thurston Moore lived at. Uh, uh, East Hampton? Um, wait. Hampton, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't remember if it's East, East or Northampton. There's Northampton, there's East Hampton. Oh, we, had, we, we had a great show and we drove for a little bit. And then we were all at a hotel. And uh, next morning, I just remember hearing a knock on the door. It was Dave Doman, who was our live front of house engineer, going, they just blew up the Twin Towers and they're bombing the White House. And uh, I was in a room with, you know, I was in the non-smoking room. And I was with uh, 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 Dave Wilcox and Sarah. And uh, we turned on the TV. We watched the plane. We watched the second tower crash down. Yeah. And we were absolutely frightened. Like, we did not know. We had no idea. And I always tell this story. Our show on September 11th, 2001, <laughs> was... At the Middle East with about radar. So yeah, yeah, I, I know. I only know that story. Uh, well, a because I know those guys, but because when Justin was on the show, he told the told the same story, and I believe I said what I'm going to say right now, which is you could not have scripted something more <laughs> ridiculous and like deep, 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 sardonically funny, uh, and yeah, then also not yeah. funny at all too. Yeah, well, I started going out with someone in Olympia. And she was flying out that day, and Justin, who Justin was with, uh, she was flying out as well. So we were absolutely, and this is before cell phones. That's trying to find a pay phone right. or call these people to see if they were all right. And, um, you know, we wound up staying at a friend's. We went to the Middle East, and we loaded in all of our stuff because, you know, we were going to go to the show, and they paid us uh, half up front just not to play. Right. So we didn't know what we were going to do. Gas prices 
I jumped up to four dollars a gallon, which is funny now. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yes, I remember well. <laughs> and uh, we were wondering how we were going to get back home. I mean, unwound. We were having good shows. People were coming out. We were, we were really playing well together. Um, Sarah gave me the greatest compliment. She's like, "I can't imagine ever not playing with you again." That was that's an amazing, incredibly, time. yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and um, we were staying in Boston for a few days while the world was so disruptive. And we wound up having a show at Maxwell's in Hoboken. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, I think it was maybe the 13th or 14th. And booking agents said the shows were still, all the, the rest, for the month, all the shows were still going to stay. There's so fear and insecurity and like you know confusion about what was going on in the world. Like it was a very very scary time. And and, and there was uncertainty. There was anxiety. There there was definitely a a feeling. You know, it was sort of like oh, are there ever going to be shows again? Like what? I mean, nobody knew like what to think or feel. Which in a way, in a way, somewhat similar the only way I can think of the, any other event to what's going on now, just that general state of anxiety and uncertainty and uh, just an in, honest to goodness, not knowing what the future looks like mindset and a uh, crazy time yeah. to be on tour. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I remember, I remember uh, when we played Maxwell's, we had a good soundtrack and then Vern and I walked to the shoreline to look at uh, Lower Manhattan. And there was still smoke coming out of the, the remains of the Twin Towers. A line of police cars, like hundreds of police cars lined along the shore. And I remember he had a bottle of schnapps. And him and I were just like, you know, taking shots from it. And Sounds like just sitting there <laughs> talking about like how the world had gone. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was a father at a point and uh, it was, it was one of those moments that you're not going to forget. Yeah. And then we played crowd at Maxwell's last that night gave us so much love and, they, they seemed so happy to see us because people were still coming over from New York to see the band. We had a great set. I met Bob Burt, who was in, you know, from Sonic Youth and Pussy Galore. And, yep, who was on the show as I well. Love- a wonderful man and a great player. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Sonic Youth was my favorite band growing up. Sonic Youth were my guides to becoming, uh, you know, having my musical taste my uh opening my eyes and ears and my senses to all sorts of outsider art you know the film you know stan brackage or no wave or you know learning that black flag wasn't just for jocks you know <laughs> right exactly they, they were your gateway drug into uh more bizarre music world yeah yeah and which also included breaking down, I'm sure, some preconceived notions about uh, certain aspects of that as well that maybe you already were familiar with, uh, as they were for me and many others also, especially 
folks of a certain age, especially, it's kind of hard to overstate how massive their uh, influence was to basically anyone in quote unquote weird music or whatever that. Yeah, yeah. We're finding out about Glenn and I would listen to Sonic Youth records so deeply with, you know, uh, headphones or, you know, those ones with the orange, like Walkman right. headphones. And imagine the room that they were in and I would listen for every little nuance that was going sure. on in the yeah. playing. You know, if, if I had been smoking pot and listening to them, I thought I was in the band. <laughs> sure, which is yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I took them very, very deeply. And um, yeah, I don't drink or do drugs anymore. And I haven't for 15 years, but um, okay. that's really you know uh, that band you know this is pre-internet age i would go to the library when i was in high school and pick up old articles that i would find that uh in the library and read about um interviews with them it was right. like <laughs> they, they, they're one of the most important things that to me that i Probably the most important band that I haven't played in, you know, <laughs> to me. Well, totally, and and, and it's and it's it, yeah, and again, it, it's hard to both overstate their influence within quote unquote weird music, even if um, you know it's not something where necessarily the kids of today. I don't know whether they do or don't know from Sonic Youth, but also that yeah, it wasn't all out there. You couldn't just like you know, type, I'm making a typing motion here. You, you can't just like type a few things, hit a button and, and there you go. You know, everything there is to know about a band. Like it was, you needed to dig a little bit. There was, there was some mis- mystery to it. And part of the adventure of being a fan of that kind of stuff would be just uncovering that and be like, Oh, wow, what, what are they saying? You know, I can't wait to say what, what they had to say in this zine. Oh man, let's see what, what that's about. And, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think people, well, back then when there were, you had limited access, I think it's great that we have access to all sorts of information. Sure. And over the, over the weekend, you can become expert in the whole genre of tropicali or learn yeah, right. all about New York record uh, bands and then find out about things like Y Pants and Theoretical Girls and to go further and further down that. But do you feel that... In the past, because you couldn't just listen to a playlist on Spotify or, you know, you know, download some, some collection of music, you'd spend more time on a particular record. Uh, yeah, like, absolutely. Like, like I, I spent so much time in between Evil and Daydream Nation. I sat on Sister for a long time, and I would just listen to that and... You know, I would take that music in like like I remember the hear those records inside and out. Yeah. You know, that's uh, you know, another bit. Another big band to me was like Big Black. Of course. I loved Big Black, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and again, hard to overstate the influence uh, for an entire generation that came after of just how crazy how crazy it was that that existed, how crazy the record sounded, how they're frankly wasn't anything like it for a very very long time yeah yeah and uh love shellac have you have you had bob weston on he's a gem of a human being uh, he's <laughs> well no i've asked multiple times and he's he's demurred he's actually when we when my old band replicator used to play chicago 
we would generally play to, we'll charitably say, small crowds. Uh, but one of them was almost always Bob Weston, and we always stayed at his place, and he was always incredibly kind and cool to us and uh, a true yeah. friend. And he's I'm just telling that story because I think it needs to be out there because I think people don't realize how awesome Bob Weston really is. And I wish he would come on the show, but he's turned me down a couple times for it because he just doesn't want to do this kind of thing. And I, I get it, but I think he'd be great to have on. Yeah, I feel that, yeah, I feel that same way too. Like, you know, it's uh, it's a very odd thing to be talking about this sort of stuff. I'm very, very thankful that you asked me to be a part of this and, um, you know, reminisce about the past and all. Yeah. So speaking of which, and I don't want I, I want to keep moving forward because that's kind of where I enter the timeline with you after that. But I do want to talk real quick that some of the stuff that you've done, uh, like the like the there was like the the wire like the electric wire and like the sheet and like just kind of like the the homemade instruments and stuff like that what i mean i would is that that come as just an extension out of messing around with existing effects and electronics uh what where where did you get the ideas for some of these more wacky non-traditional instruments wacky might might be the correct term that sounds disrespectful but i mean these outsider instruments unique bizarrely crafted uh, noise-making devices. I can't emphasize enough my friendship with Damien Romero over the years and turning me on to so much experimental music, turning me on to the kraut rock scene, teaching me about how to solder and use contact mics. And um, learning that contact mic you back off of. And uh, I remember making a contact mic and putting it against my throat <laughs> and creating a really sound. It's like because yeah. contact mics pick up vibration and amplifies things. And um, seeing some things that people were doing in the harsh noise scene, uh, you know, when uh, uh, Mersbo was, when I first saw Mersbo at this club called, well, no, I saw him before, but. You know, Mersbo, everyone knows about Mersbo. If you're in a sort of certain sort of genre of music, whether it's like sort of like uh, hospital records, Vatican Shadow, mm-hmm. or you're into some, like, you know, sort of stuff. So uh, uh, Mersbo will play at the Regent Theater in front of like 600 people now. But there was a time no one was going to see like harsh noise shows. And I remember Buzz and I went to this place called 50 Bucks. And... Uh, uh, <laughs> He had this sort of thing, like a reverb plate with springs on it and contact mics in it and a tabletop full of electronics. And he borrowed every noise musician's amp in Los Angeles and filled the room with amplifiers. Oh, wow. And from the... It's wild. And right. so all has a sort of brown hum. He presses a button, all of a sudden it is the loudest sound pressure explosion of all frequencies at once. Oh, man. That sounds, that sounds cool and daunting at the same time. <laughs> yeah, because this club was really, it was like a little bar uh, at 7th and Santa Fe. That was a really rough neighborhood. Probably this was about 97, maybe 95 even. I can't remember. But, I mean, you know, there is, you know, you could get like maybe 50 people in Los Angeles doing that. So it was very, very inspired about like what a contact mic could do. Sure. And, yeah. you know, you know, I remember 
Buzz wanted me to make noise and I wanted to do something that was personalized, also had a performance element to it. And I always, there was something about a show when you just see someone standing up there, (laughs) you know, just thinking about what they're doing. I wanted a physical performance. Right, right. And I think that's that's an important distinction because when you are talking about a live performance, when you have something where there's a physicality to it rather than somebody just pushing and making it for people listening to the podcast. I'm making a big exaggerated pushing a button motion, but it, 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 it's more interesting it's more fun and it somehow makes it more, more notable for everyone there. Really? Yeah. And that's why I love like, uh, Mazo from, uh, uh Sonia. like he had hair. You, you've seen him, right? His hair down yeah, to yeah. his waist. Of course. Yeah. Sunglasses. You know, he's got bell bottoms. And the first time I saw him, he had this sort of like belt that looked like something that would wear. And he just kind of stood there like, and he flicked us on and he started shaking and freaking out. And it was hideous, harsh, not hideous, just amazing noise. And the more he moved, the more it rattled around. And I, it, I found out that he had a contact mic in this box. So the more that he would move, the more sound would come out of it. And it was just so, it'd run through the audience, things would get unplugged. And while things were unplugging, the, the sound the amplifiers were just, it was that ground hum. And the anticipation of him plugging it back in, the physicality of the performance, and then we could plug it back in and the sound would come, and like his sets would be like two minutes, maybe right. even less. And <laughs> Yeah, I so I was very, very inspired by him. And I I met him over the years, and I remember a few years later getting into synthesizer, and he has this really amazing project called Space Machine, and him playing with modular synth. And uh, I wish I would have a recording of that, but I felt very, very on. Yeah, yeah. Space Machine, check his stuff out. It's you know, it's it's really beautiful. It's really, really beautiful stuff. And um, so when we were doing Melvin's shows, but I started the second set, I believe, because we were doing the two-by-four tour. We were doing kind of a quiet set, and we were doing a proper loud Melvin set. And I think I would start the second set, and I wanted to do something that was interesting um, and maybe a little uncomfortable and uh, something that just, you know, I would have thought uh, was cool if I was a um, a kid going to do a show. And, you know, the first thing I did was buy, I bought this coil of wire and I tied it to the end of the contact mic and I put it into my effects with boost. So, um, and it's kind of like that whole idea of, you know, like when you play telephone, that sort of rattling like sound when you have a string between two styrofoam cups. Right, right. And so, you know, at first I was just standing on stage shaking this wire. At one point, I forget where on the tour, I wanted to not do the same thing every night. I wanted to have variations. I wanted it to evolve. And um, so I went into the audience and the audience would park down the center 
and I would be, you know, back at the back of the hall, which could be anywhere from like 30 feet to like 70 feet. Oh, wow. Okay. And yeah. The amplifier was cranked. And if I pulled back, get the, the feedback. So I'd rattle at this for a while. Then I'd set, then I'd create a loop with it. So it would keep on building on itself. Right. And at some point, on the wire, I handed it to someone in the audience because I wanted them to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. And things going. And, it, you know, when I would first do this, sometimes people thought they were going to get electrocuted. By it. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know? yeah, it's like a foreign thing. It's like, yeah, it's making a weird noise. Like, it's not. <laughs> that it's- yeah. And, and I, I genuinely wanted it to be like fun and inclusive to be show and that would go on for a while uh i got another contact mic uh i would put it on the head of dale's shell mm-hmm. and that would start feeding back into itself too so i could get the drums to feed back right and i think it might have been the second tour where i was like you know what i need to i want another physical piece of Another thing so, that you could you could interact with in the like, so i look at the, i, I harsh noise sets or used to harsh noise sets i look at each instrument as its own sort of piece mm-hmm. and like one's the you know contact mic on the wire uh the other one's the drum feedback and the other and the other thing was the thunder sheets so i got three contact mics i drilled a hole in a piece of sheet metal i put wooden handles on it to keep the uh uh, contact mics really tight against the sheet now. I put a jack on it, right? And I crank the amp so I could get this sort of thunder sheet to feed back into itself. And I think I was doing that for local shows. And at some point, it got bent, and I was just kind of like, "Well," I started crushing it on stage, and that was creating its own wall of sound. Um, I was also into like circuit bent stuff, so I had this sort of like Darth Vader toy box. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, and it had these sorts of contacts and cause it to short out and push out. So I would start. I'd go out to the audience and I would put this thing against the ears very quietly because it wasn't plugged into an amp. And then I'd say something to them like, "Have a good show," or "Yeah, cool." <laughs> and, just like, and then I'd get back up on stage. And this is while all this other sort of noise was going on. And you know, I never was you know, mean to anyone or I wasn't trying to like, uh, you know, piss anyone off. Um, cause it just is like, and then really like saying, giving someone a compliment, you know? Um, and then, you know, I plug this thing. I all of a sudden I'd stand there and then I plug it into my amp. It would start screaming and then I'd slowly turn everything off. So it was just sort of this super harsh noise, like, vocal process then i'd plug it go to dead silence so you know that was kind of uh what i would do at the beginning of melvin shows and I, we did some of those things with melvin's phantomos i did the wire thing uh mike was you know he has a deep history with avant-garde and uh you know experimental music and great intimidatingly to my sort of my sensibility extremely nervous to be around Mike but he was so nice and supportive uh, trusted me to be up there you know right. and 
and Trevor, who's so smart about music and like he's a trained, you know, total badass. Yeah. Total badass. And so, so smart. And he's a sweetheart. And, you know, I'm, you know, I don't know how to communicate with people, you know, uh, and I'm awkward and nervous around people. I take drinks to kind of cool the, cool those sorts of nervousness around them. And, um, you know, but everyone was really, really nice. And many times I didn't know, uh, I didn't feel like I should be up there, you know, in all honesty. And it's weird, yeah. Like, I kind of don't feel that way anymore. I kind of feel like I, you know, doing a lot of work, making a lot of lifestyle changes, having a lot of experiences, um, not making music and external things so much a part of my identity. It's something that I do. Mm. Uh, you know, again, these are like, again, it sounds so new agey, but these are sort of like things I like spiritual no, you know? no, absolutely. I mean, like it's you know whatever. Just because New Age has co-opted a bunch of very valid <laughs> concerns and and things that have to do with you know human being doesn't necessarily mean that it's New Age. Just because that's uh that's been co-opted by the by those folks. I mean, they it's, there's there's crass usury of everything, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you know, it's like um. You know, there's a concern that, you know, people that listen to your interviews because they love Steve Albini or they love uh, Melvin's or Jesus Lizard or Red Cross or, you know, are, you know, going to think like, you know, I'm some sort of hippie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sure. But then conversely, also, there's. Like I had a Hackety Pachoto on, which is uh, Daniel Pachoto and Alexander Hackett. And and they did. Not one, Love. but two yoga Love. records. And it's so cool. It's so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm moving towards that direction of, like, owning the things that I'm interested in. You know, and it really, really helps when I don't, you know, developing some sort of sense of you know self-esteem not by what band I'm playing in or right. my identity no longer based in those things. I mean, I work on music all the time. And, you know, every time I play, you know, there's some sort of, you know, I I think it's a healthy sense of, of, um, competition where, you know, playing with your buddies, it's like, you know, you know, in every good band I've played in, you know, there's been like a general idea of like, let's be tough and scary and, uh, you don't want to follow us. LCD, you know, you might, I don't know what you, what people know about them, but James Murphy, Pat, all that whole gang comes from underground America from the nineties. They were all in bands that toured in vans and, right. uh, you might come up from God and Silo. Cause, uh, the only reason I knew when I went to go work with them was Tyler. And I knew Tyler slept in, on the floor of my house when he was in Chick Chick Chick. Right. <laughs> but you know, I didn't know James was in this band that was on tour with Long Hind Legs and Fits of Depression, yeah. you know? And, Speaking day, yeah. 
eking days, all of that stuff. I just thought he was like this uh, post-punk producer that only knew about house and techno and disco and all these things. So, you know, it's like uh, they're a band that still felt that, that went into this world of like the Strokes and the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and Interpol right. feeling like dogs and they wanted to be tougher and scarier and better than all those bands. And then they brought that punk rock sensibility to a bigger, what became at a later point, a bigger live show and a bigger, uh, a bigger stage, but bringing that same sort of nineties underground mindset. Yeah. Toughness. Yeah. Melvins. You don't want to follow the Melvins. You do not want to play after the Melvins. (laughs) Right. It's a bummer. (laughs) Yeah. You don't want to play after the locusts. Yeah. You know, uh, unwound. I I wanted to be so good that you didn't want to follow us, you know. Right. In uh, LCD, absolutely. When we would play huge festivals after them, crooked vultures. It was like, okay, here's my here's I have a chance to be a part of something that is tougher than John Paul Jones, Dave Grohl, and Josh from. <laughs> Highest um, and uh, what is it? Queens of the Stone Age, yeah. you know. And uh, it was like their emergency, like in spite of playing like a headlining slot at many festivals, you right. know, which was an experience for me that I'd never done before. And um, you know, people in LCD, once again, they were like my people that I'd not met, and I love everyone in that band. I'm still very good friends with them. And always looking forward to what they're doing. Um, you know, checked in with everyone during the pandemic because New York was hit pretty hard. Yeah, you, it was it was originally Seattle that had it the worst, and then it definitely became New York fairly quickly. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're yeah. This is a. I, I hope everything's going well with this interview and stuff like that. You're doing fine. So we actually haven't covered too. We skipped over. We went to LCD, which is great, but you skipped over uh, when I met you which is playing with big business. Uh, yeah. If, if I remember correctly and correct me if I'm wrong, cause this is, this has been off repeated tale that uh, was that the, that was the tour where we played a show in San Francisco and a show in Oakland in the same night. Right. Was that when you were on, you were on that in the lineup? Cause we played with them a lot back then. And yeah, I do remember. I do remember that time period. That was such a fun, um, audacious move that people still talk about it this day. Like a few people went to both shows just for the hell of it, and and, and like they think of it very fondly. Uh, but at the time, big business being uh, definitionally a two piece uh, at the beginning, which they are now again. You were you're like, oh, they've got a guitar player now. Who's this guy? Now I happen to know Slug because I have that Jabberjaw compilation with the with the, with the seven inch. Uh, and I know those dudes. So like they, they kind of let me know what your deal was beforehand. And I was like, Oh, he's the dude that played in Un- unwound. And he's the dude that played Mel. Oh, he's that guy. Okay, cool. Like I knew that, yeah. but you're walking into something that, you know, perhaps it's less of an institution than Melvin's or unwound, but they have their thing and people expect to see the thing. Uh, now from my perspective, I know that Jerry and Cody wanted to expand out the, the, the palette to include other stuff, other sounds, other, other things. But what, what was the experience of, uh, of working with them and also playing in the live band? Because at the time it seemed very jarring to some people. Let's put it that way. Well, um, well, they played with, um, 
what's his name? Dave from uh, Son of Ch- uh, Chaka, and he was in The Shins. Oh, yeah. Dude, what, um, I know uh, you're talking Matt, about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He, on the first record, he played on some stuff. It's like real but, small, small little pieces here and there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I love Carp. You yes. know, Carp were also friends that had stayed with me. They'd come to town for a week, and we would go see movies, swap meets, store shopping, Disneyland. It was like a vacation whenever my Olympia friends came to town right, and stayed right. with me. When like Chick 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 would stay with me, I loved having bands from outside of town because I felt always much more connected to music communities outside of Los Angeles. Sure, yeah, and and uh, like I wasn't part of some sort of Someone recently tried to add me to Silver Lake Music 90s scene or something like that. <laughs> and wasn't a part of that scene. Slug was a little peripheral to that whole time period. But Jared, Scott, and Chris were people that I adored. Um, I did a second run with Melvins when Kevin left the band. And that was a temporary thing. Buzz, uh, well, I don't represent anyone in Alcoholics Anonymous, I right. got sober on that time period. I'm breaking my anonymity. And, um, you know, if I start drinking again, it would be a disaster and I do not represent it. It works if you're actually doing it. And to me, that is the center of my life. And um, so I had stopped drinking. Okay. I tried to make a lot of changes and become more of a reliable person and uh, not be a complete disaster. (laughs) And uh, Kevin had to leave the band for something, and Buzz reached out to me and said, hey, um, Kevin's not playing with us. We need a bass player temporarily until big business is going to join the band. We're going to do a tour. That's right. That's that time period. Yeah, 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 totally. Okay. So... um, yeah, so I this was a few years after Unwound because at that point I wasn't doing too much music. Uh, I wasn't doing pretty much of anything at that point because things had pr- got pretty unmanageable in my life, and um, uh, it was it was a pretty tough time. But you know, making those changes um, and the clear definition of what my involvement would be with mm-hmm. Melvins. Um, until Jared and Cody could get from Seattle to Los Angeles. And I was so excited that Jared was, for a lot of us, Jared was the drum bass player. Right. So uh, you were just, you were just saying, you were just singing the praises of one Jared Warren, Friday's guest, I might add, uh, for the, for the live show. What's that? Uh, Jared's going to be on, on Friday. I'm very excited. Yeah. Yeah. Jared, Jared's amazing. Um, I'm, I'm, you, but can you hear me and do you see a picture of yes, me? Yes, you're good. You are all good. Coming in loud and Oh, loud there and you are again. All right. Yeah. It took, took a minute. So uh, <laughs> I wound up doing, like the Melvins weren't going to do too much Melvins touring, but they had some commitments that they needed to do. They just sent a record to Jello Biafra. So we were going to do a, a Melvins Jello Biafra tour. And we, and that was limited to the coast and all 
So we started practicing Melvin songs. I didn't know these bass lines. Uh, I've been playing with Joe Lolly personally, because Joe Lolly from, uh, from Fugazi moved yeah. to Los Angeles. Yeah, him and I, and you know, he's a great, solid sort of uh, person to be around. Absolutely. You know? Very grounded. Uh, really, highly <laughs> hilarious, actually. People don't realize how funny that dude yeah, is. And he was kind of one like, um, so him and I were trying to do some music here, and and um, I asked him if I could borrow his bass because I he had a really great bass, so he let me borrow the Fugazi bass to practice. <laughs> no, you know, awesome. yeah, yeah, yeah. Bass that waiting room was played on, and <laughs> you know, you know, I, I had a very poor sense of boundaries, and like, you know, uh, it didn't even, you know. I didn't even think twice, but hey, can I borrow your bass? You know, right, right. And because I would play his bass, and it was so much easier to play than my bass. It sounded great, so much low end. It was a what do you call it? Uh, what is a uh, what do you call it? stingray? You know? Yeah, it's a it very was, very cool looking bass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so easy to play. It was amazing, and he was like, uh, "Sure," and he's so kind. Um, and, you know, I started learning the Melvin's bass lines. I started learning um, the Jelvins. Um, right, the Jel Biafra and the Melvins set, yeah. And I started to use, uh, we started practicing Dead Kennedys songs, which <laughs> are... Right, of course, yeah. How do you not? Awesome. <laughs> Well, Klaus is an amazing bass player, you know, and I never even kind of like that, like do 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 lots of things. Yeah, you know. So again, it was a challenge to my abilities. Uh, like when I first joined the Melvins and learning the Phantomos material, which is um, also, you know, it was very challenging to me. But you know, I practiced every day. I with complete focus and long around that time period you know i started like like sort of having like i had to sort of change and you know i'm still working on this today i'm not an expert at it but you know realizing what a gift it is to play music with people um you know it's not about the thing that drove me you know i love music and i love how it changed my life and it made me feel and my experience with playing music together and all. Um, I also like the attention and I also loved making money from playing music and all. But I started having a shift and like tried to be a little bit more service and look at it as a gift and my practice and work ethics started becoming a lot better. And, mm-hmm. you know, it started becoming easier. I started gaining a little bit more confidence when I had that sort of shift that this isn't about what it's going to bring to me. It's me doing my job and me uh, supporting these other, being a part of a, a unit. And, and yeah, it was weird. Like all these, some of these things that didn't make any sense to me, I started hearing music differently and all. And um, yeah, so I, figured out these crazy, like... Very d- complex, and, difficult bass parts. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, and it was so wild being around Jello. Yeah. You know, once again, you know, someone that I admired 
and uh, was intimidated by learning that he's an amazing uh, person. Uh, he's he's authentically him. Um, he reaches out when he comes to town and puts me on the guest list to this day to see him play. <clears throat> he's wanted to know what I'm up to. He's, he stayed interested in what my life is about. Right. And um, yeah, yeah. So we were doing, uh, so we did a Melvin set and we would do a Jello set and I hope we smashed it. I, I hope we did a good job. It felt really tough. I love playing bass with Dale. You know, it was absolutely incredible. So it was closer to the time that uh, big business were going to move to town. Uh, we did some more Melvin stuff. I play shows three piece locally. We did uh, film scores with Cameron and Jamie flying out to France to play like the Max Dennett Theater. I love playing the live scores uh, with Cameron and Jamie. And I, yeah, pretty cool. I love, I love doing things in the art world and all. And I wound up uh, forming a band after that with this guy, Aaron Rose, who ran the Legend Gallery called the Sads. And there's a film about him called Beautiful Losers. And that was another project that, you know, well, that was more like the art world project. But mm -hmm. um, so Jared wanted to expand the band and he asked me to play with them. And he started practicing with the Melvins and Cody started playing with the Melvins. And um, then uh, we started working on the next big business record. And... I didn't really know how to, it took a while for me to kind of figure out some things to do because there's something about a singular power about big business, yeah. like one riff. And I do this in my electronic music. The electronic music that I do feels more closer to the Melvins. One riff over and over again with very sort of arranged, it's closer to like Melvins conceptually, not sonically right. than like, how how it hits you know? versus what it's doing when it hits. Yeah. Uh -huh, uh -huh. We put together songs for Here Comes the Waterworks and we recorded up in Seattle. The owner of the place sold me a an ARP sequencer and a, I brought my, my Moog Voyager right. up there too. And he gave me an incredible deal for an ARP sequencer and this thing called the Avatar, was, which was the guitar synthesizer. Mm -hmm. He sold me for 400 bucks i think i did some sort of noise with that and all but you know it's like ultimately like big business is should be one super tough singular riff with jared's like soaring vocals yeah. super tight tough drumming and all and uh you know it's like i've listened back to that record and it's like a lot of things I've done in the past, it's like, wow, I can't even, like, when I see footage of me in some band, it's like, wow, I can't believe I gifted that opportunity to do that. It almost feels like another person and all, you know? Um, and, you know, it's like, I like a lot, I like, I like that record. Uh, I love that song. I think another 4th of July ruined. It's uh, one of their best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that way? Remind me about this because I never really listen to things that I've done. Um, is that da 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 da? You know, I think I did like I was trying to do a Jimmy Page sort of solo, like right, breakdown. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. That's um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh God, I I don't remember the name of it off the top of my. I know what I know yeah, it well. I listen to that record to this day. I mean, I 
I celebrate oh, the entire okay. catalog, but I, I listened to that one yeah. probably just as much as uh, actually the new one is quite very, very good. Uh, yeah, anyway. I saw them play with them. I saw them in Geronimo open up for the Locusts, and nice. it was, you know, you know, back to being a two-piece, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was really, it, and, and I only played a handful of shows with them, you know. And so, yeah, that's my experience with them, you know. So then you got about a like a, I think it's about a three-year gap or so before you start playing with LCD. What happens in, in the interim uh, with there? Well, in all honesty, to get to get real real, um, uh, what happened with Melvin's? Uh, I let them down, and I betrayed some trust with them. Uh, I was supposed to do a tour with them. I was going to play in big business. I was going to play in the Melvins and I was going to do road work for them. At that time, I, in my, I wasn't up for that work. And I felt, I loved, I, I was so grateful for everything the Melvins had done for me in my life. I tour that I wasn't doing and I waited until nine days before the tour to I know I know it, I don't I don't do this yeah I I do not feel good about this but I I betrayed a long-term relationship with them you know I really let them down it was really really bad on my part I've no excuse for that uh, it was very unprofessional and beyond that it was betrayal of a friendship and well, I'll say this: you don't do anything small. <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> no. uh, that's yeah, I, wow. That's I, heavy. I, okay. I, I I do I do carry you know and like you know you know it's like I, I I don't forget that, but I I don't make I don't behave like that anyway anymore. If I say I'm going to do right. something, I'm going to do it. Right. right. You know. And so it wasn't only just Buzz and Dale; it was also letting down Jared and Cody. Jared and Cody. It was the whole, the, yeah, the whole world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, I don't know. I mean, they didn't do anything wrong. I just I have no excuse for that behavior. I was being really selfish. And um, you know, these days, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. You know. And if I don't feel like doing it, I, I walk through that and keep my word. And I will never work with the Melvins again because of that. And I, 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 Buzz is a man of his word. And I, I, I respect him for that decision. You know, he's, you know, I can't tell you enough, like, you know, beyond like, you know, here's someone that really believed in my music ability, put me on like a world stage to uh and put me in the trust with his band um i admire him his work i learned how to have a good work ethic i admire his relationship with his wife um you know i think about him and his his like relationship goals like he really really loves his wife i don't want to get too much into his personal business but he is a the man that truly loves his wife and they have 
you know, I've seen a very, very good relationship. And um, um, so, you know, I made my own bed with that. And uh, I, I accept the consequences for that. And it, um, I, I learned a lot of lessons from that. And uh, yeah, it wasn't, I, it just wasn't good. You know, was not good what I did. And, and uh, you know, I, you know, I do show up for any job I say I'm going to do now. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, it's, you know, I'm thankful that uh, I've, I've, since that happened, I still have gone to Melbourne shows and they're very nice to me. Uh, they put me on the list a few times. Um uh, you know, uh, but you know, you know, res I respect them enough to stay out of their life, and you know, but yeah, I mean, uh, I do do miss them, you know, yeah, I do, and um, and they are still the best band, they are so so incredible, so powerful. Steve is amazing. Yeah. Still weird, uh, you know. It's just like I'm excited for what they're going to do next and all. Yeah, so that's really getting honest on your stage about what happened with them. Well, you know, no, I appreciate that. Was, and that's it's it's a it's a, it's a, it's yeah, a different yeah. kind of heavy. <laughs> yeah, 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 and um, you know, it's it's uh, it was very immature of me and very selfish, and um, you know, there's no going back. You know, so. Uh, but still a massive fan, and uh, I will never forget the things, uh, how they all shaped my life. Dale is, you know, an amazing person. Um, uh, he also, you know, you know, is very inspirational. Like, no one plays drums like him. Uh, he's married to a friend of mine. He's married to a friend of a lovely family, and, you know, I've been to part... In the last few years, I've been to a party at their house. I don't see them all the time. And, you know, I don't, like, reach out and call anymore and stuff like that. And uh, uh, out of remorse and respect, you know. But, yeah, so that relationship in my life is gone. And I uh, burned the whole thing up, you know. Um, and... You know, in that time period, I got into building my modular synthesizer. I started developing a relationship, friendship, musical relationship with Joey Karam. We were doing some sort of like avant-garde sort of electronic stuff together. Mm -hmm. And we'd open for bands like some, like some girls. And, uh, you know, we opened up for, him and I did the performance opening up for Space Machine, which is uh, Masana. Uh, right, of course. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me, Mersbo, excuse me. I'm oh, sorry, I'm getting the names mixed up. They all sound the same. Um, Mersbo uh, and Masana. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Very yeah. different, actually. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mazda. Mazda. Uh, we're doing a recording. I'm learning how to use logic. And because, you know, analog tape is a total nightmare to work with and take costs a lot of money to maintain. And like, yeah. And the locusts are in between records. And it's around, uh, her, it was right before Trina hit. And Joey, out of the blue, says, yeah, I was talking to the guys, we're doing a tour up the coast, and we wanted to know if you wanted to be a part of our uh, the Locust for one tour. 
<laughs> and right. again, I'm like, how is this going to work? You know, because they got a pretty tightly knit thing that they do, and and yeah, <laughs> Joey, da, da, yeah. you know, <laughs> there's not a lot of space wow. for uh, psychedelic yeah, improv. Yeah. <laughs> I was doing some like noise since I was focusing on that stuff, and you know, they're just like, just come on down. So I brought the thunder sheet, the wire, uh, a small version of my modular set. And we start practicing. It's right around Hurricane Katrina. I'm going down to San Diego every weekend to practice with the Locust. We're trying to find spaces for me to do what I do with it. And we go up the coast and we go on tour. Um, you know, they, you, they all uniforms are custom made. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, it, it's, and it's, it's part of their whole deal. Like it's a thing. <laughs> right. Right. And Everyone has a body size than I do. And um, uh, the closest person whose clothes I could fit in is, is a Jess or JP's. And I, I mean, he is a rail, He's you a know, skinny dude, I could yeah. not, fit, you know, I could not fit into his pants whatsoever. And we're playing chain reaction. I think maybe it's the first show. Mm-hmm. And I go to a thrift store and I find these white golf pants and these striped socks. Right. So I'm still fitting in the top fine, but, and so I'm wearing the, the, the locust uniform, but it's like, they're all in their uniform. And I'm in this like off weirdo thing that I found at a thrift store <laughs> version of it. And again, people are like, who is this guy ruining the locust? You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like, what's this, is this guy supposed to be here? Did he just, did he just wander in? Like, what's going on? <laughs> but, you know, it's another it's, it's another gift and blessing to be around such good musicians. Like, yeah. you know, I went from playing with Dale and Dave Lombardo on stage to playing with Gabe. It's just, like, incredible, you know? And Maximilian from Get Hustle, another incredible drummer. And uh, Sarah. Sarah, yeah, Sarah unique. Lund, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like I've played with incredible drummers. Like I've done one-offs with Zach Hill, you know, noise and drums with him. And like, um, I love, I love Zach's playing. I've been very, very, and I know n- up until I got a drum machine, I knew nothing about how drums were composed and all. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we did a lost, we did a tour up the coast playing this festival. It was bumper shoot. And we played Gilman Street. I am kind of, they put me kind of like, I'm standing on stage and it's almost like I'm front and center when I shouldn't be. (laughs) And I'm wearing these sort of striped socks. And all of a sudden I felt the burning on the back of my leg. And I'm using this thing called the Dark Star Chaos module that's making digital noise. I look down and there's a sort of like, emo she's not she was a crusty punk she was a very stylized sort of like you know emo suicide girl sort of like and she's biting the back of my calf <laughs> i'm looking down there and she's on the back of my leg i, I don't know maybe she's not bobby or or justin or something like that or joey but like it was an odd, and she wouldn't let go, and I had to kind of shake her, and then she kind of walked away. She looked at me, 
and it was a you know it was a really it was, I can say it was a bad look, but it certainly made me feel kind of uncomfortable in a weird way. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, um, but it was great hanging out with those guys. You know, they became very good friends. Joey was the one I was super close with. And I, uh, I knew Gabe very well as, as well. And I got closer and I especially got closer to JP and, you know, love that guy he is one of the hardest working people in that i know and you know he's played he continues to keep on going and uh they're all i'm so glad that they're back so that's a lot of his story after, after that i formed this band with this guy aaron rose called the sads and he uh ran this gallery in the 90s called the alleged gallery that uh you know it, it started bringing He's known as kind of like the grand godfather of street art because okay. he's the gallery. And, and uh, there's a documentary on it. And he brought a lot of worlds of graffiti art, skateboard culture, like Supreme. Uh, you know, the guys from Vice would go down there, almost sensibility sure. of Vice. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of snarky, like hip New York. You know, even though they're from Montreal, sort of uh, Harmony Corinne, Chloe Seventy. Sonic Youth, the Beastie Boys all used to like do events there. And he moved to LA and he wanted to form his first band. So my friend, this guy, uh, Callie or Mike DeWitt or Mike Thornhall DeWitt, who's now like a, a very well-known designer, works with like Kanye West and stuff like that, introduced us. And I didn't know anything about street art or Aaron Rose's, you know, sort of world, but he is kind of like a buzz of art world. Of that you know? world, sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and um, and uh, the Godfather in Sam, the Godfather of alt or grunge or whatever you'd call buzz drone drone rock or drone metal. Yeah, Aaron is that for street art. So our first show was at Family Books, and I wanted to play just synth in the band. So I was okay. playing Little Fatty. I wanted to play keyboards in the band, and uh, so. I, you know, our first show was at Family Books and Miranda July was working with us. And while we were doing these songs, Miranda July had just put out her first movie and she had sort of this cult following. There was a lot of people that loved what she did. And, you know, SADS was almost designed to be a little like sort of school and pretentious in the best possible way. Right. And um, like while we were doing these shows, she was typing poems <laughs> <laughs> and during the show yeah 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 okay and there would be all of these young women that were fighting each other for these poems that she was like writing while we were doing like the set oh wow okay and yeah yeah and the music was very velvet underground dish it was a little twee it was a little you know um uh, modern lovers ish it was a little broken damaged and fragile and it was cool to go from intense stuff to this. Right, very different and, vibe, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Aaron started using a lot of his art world resources. And in the first couple of months, we were flying out to play, like, the Freeze Art Festival in London. And, like, Jarvis Cocker would be in the audience. And Palais mm -hmm. de Tokyo in France, which is this really big modern art museum, or the ICA. And it was... And, uh, 
uh, Dan Monick was the drummer. He was in this band called Lifter Puller in the Atlas oh, sure. in the 90s. Yeah, they eventually and, some of the folks moved into Hold Steady. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dan was not part of Hold Steady, but he was a photographer. And um, and this girl, Oscar uh, uh, Matsumia, who was from the Seattle sort of scene. And now she's actually a very well-respected composer. Mm. And, uh, and so then, uh, I'll be brief with the sads and all, uh, we wanted to do some performances. I had this idea that I always wanted to do a silent performance, um, where everyone in the audience would listen on headphones. Uh, so Aaron can make, okay, sure, Aaron yeah. would make, Aaron can make anything happen. He's incredible at making something happen. You come up with a weird idea and he makes, he finds someone to fund it. He throws his own resources into making it happen. He's incredible. So he contacted some people and we figured out how to do a silent performance where we set up a hundred sets of headphones and the audience listened to, in, to the performance surrounded by us. And he, he called in um, the director, Mike Mills, who's a graphic design artist. He mm -hmm. was friends with Mike Mills. So Mike Mills, he did 20th Century Women. Uh, 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 what's the other one? He's done a few films. Uh, what's Beginners? Uh, he art directed this whole thing. And so he surrounded the stage with, with flowers and monitors of what Mike Mills films. And he created this really beautiful thing. And like, uh, we were flying out to art, uh, art festivals and again, more museums, Milan doing this sort of performance and uh, everything was electronic. We put out a record of the performance through the headphones and the, the beast was the sound of the room. So you could only hear the drum pads being hit the ambience <laughs> of the room, and the vocals. Right, right, right. So that, if, if that kind of tells you the sensibility of the sads, yeah, sure. that's kind of like doing like weird stuff that, you know, uh, most of the world wouldn't do. So there we go. The sads, you know, I, I did some work with, Ty, you know, Chick, Chick, Chick. I did a photo shoot with, with um, uh, David Lynch for this project, which was really weird. I forgot about the best that one. Possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. David Lynch photographed me in a cave in my underwear, uh, lifting weights. And, uh, <laughs> you know, there was definitely, since I'm a bit of, you know, I'm not like JP skinny, but like, it's not because I'm really super cut or anything. Um, I formed a side project with Oscar called Ostiska and uh, Spike Jones shot a video with us with Christo Moselle, who did the Wolf Pack, uh, the show Betty, Skate Kitchen. Um, and, you know, I hit a bottom with music and I quit music. I started getting back into meditation and kind of working on my spiritual life and made a bunch of changes. And one day Tyler Pope calls me up and says, LCD Sound System's looking for a guitar player. Are you interested? And I couldn't believe it. And um, yeah, I flew out to New York trying to wonder, like trying to figure out how this was going to work out. Uh, I love that band. I heard your your city's a sucker on the radio i didn't hear losing my edge first of all i heard your city's a sucker because i thought lcd was like another rap sort of band and um 
those people were so inspiring to me. And they still are to this day. They were punks from the 90s that light, had really good taste in music. And, um, you know, they somehow got into the history of dance music, techno, house, disco, electro music. Right. And I had no guides, you know, you know, if I'm listening to any of the Morricone soundtracks that Mike Patton turned me on to, or, uh, you know, uh, outside music. Yeah. I, I just did not hear for house and techno and just being around them and then playing me stuff and learning how I have appreciation for Frankie Knuckles or Larry LeVon or Marshall Jefferson. You know, I didn't realize that I always like the sound of what acid house is, which is the sound of a 909 and a TB 303 distorted. I always like that sort of sound in dance music, but I didn't know what acid house was. And, you know, I started learning. I, James turned me on to this book called Last Night a DJ Saved My Life. And he told me, yeah, start at the chapter of disco uh, and then read hip hop, then read house one, uh, then read disco two or something like that. And I started reading chapters in this book. And, you know, I'd read all the punk rock books, you know, Richard Hell's book. Uh, um, sure. What do you call it? Psych- Psychocock reactions and, and carburetor dump. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we've got the neutron bomb. Who's mm-hmm. uh, on the British post punk stuff? And being um, that and starting to like learn some of the names and faces of what house music was, a significant thing that got me on board was, was realizing that disco didn't start in 1977. I mean, this is obvious. I knew this, but I didn't know the history before Saturday Night Fever. You know, that was a very commercial trend, and it was very gross at that point and all. But how disco came out of soul and funk and all. And it came from a lot of smaller communities making party music in sort of speakeasies and bars. And, um, and, what was happening was that, you know, it was pretty much Saturday Night Fever was disco overload. And there was that guy in Chicago who, um, you know, bought the disco records at Wrigley Field. Oh, uh, the DJ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't remember the fellow's name right now. But I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, he really wanted to bring this sort of, like, all-American ACDC, Rolling Stones, Aerosmith sort of, like, bro-y sort of thing back. Mm-hmm. And and it pretty much destroyed that culture. Like, everyone that had a disco record was dropped. It was like Nirvana and hair metal. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people, and, you know, quite honestly, it wasn't, like, you know, straight or cis, um, you know, uh, uh, it was it was like people of color and people from the LGBTQ community, and that all of a sudden had you know more records to play, and it really they were trying to figure out what to do. And these guys, you know, I'm telling you, you know, you can read about this, but Frank Knuckles, you know, and Larry Levon not having new disco records to play, but the ingenuity of Frankie Knuckles taking disco breaks from yeah. disco records. And then tapping in a 909 
uh, drum beat underneath a reel-to-reel creating house music. Genius, you know? And it's just like, you know, knowing that story and then hearing some music, it was, you know, I had made guides before, you know? And, you know, on that tour, I got rid of like 30 gigs of music that I'd been listening to that kept me warm for a number of years. You know, I got rid of everything except Noi, Can, um, you know, uh, uh, Cluster, Harmonium, you know, and uh, I filled up, started filling up my uh, MP3 library with just learning the history of house disco techno. And, you know, I started seeing just how psychedelic disco music is. I mean, the playing can be incredible. And some of these ideas about production, it predates, you know, it's it, so much genre and it's the production and the mix of genius, dub music tech. And last 10 years, I've been learning how to like chord and mix music. That's been my discipline. The 90s were about guitar and effects. The aughts were about synthesizers. And the last 10 years is about using the studio. Now, I don't know where I'm going with the next 10 years, but I should get around to songwriting at this point. <laughs> well, can you... So- so, so real quick, and and Dave, I, w- I want to thank you so much for spending so much time with me. And this this has been exactly as entertaining as I thought it would be, which is to say quite a bit. But I, I I just I need you to explain to me how you ended up doing something with the bass player uh, for Duran Duran and how that how that came oh, to pass. If you can. But it'll have to be well, a, as a, a more concentrated version, perhaps, because I just noticed okay. the time. <laughs> okay, really quickly. Um, yeah, two years ago, I was working with John Taylor Duran Duran, who I, another outstanding gem of a human being. Uh, I got asked by Paul Behan, because I built this studio that has a lot of vintage gear, a lot of synthesizers. I have, I've done script scoring and soundtracks over the last few years. And Paul, who I'd known kind of a little bit, asked me to shoot a quick video of all of my gear, not telling me what it was for. Okay. Um, and a few minutes later, he got back to me and Paul, like any random person, I'm not going to show them what I've got. You, you don't even see what's going on over here on this side. But um, so Paul got back to me 10 minutes later. It's like, hey, can I book you for this, this day, this day, and this day? I'm like, sure. What is it for? And he's like, uh, the bass player of Duran Duran is looking to do a soundtrack. And I'm like, whoa, dude, dude. <laughs> Don Taylor, and I was a kid growing up. Duran Duran was like David Bowie to me. I back to pretend I was in the Big Black and Sonic Youth, right. and you know, scratch acid when I was nine years old. You know, I'm not going to like that. You know, I like Duran Duran. I also like David Bowie, and you know, I loved like I loved sequencers before I knew what sequencers were right, as a kid. Right, yeah, and you know, uh, you know. Duran was very, very infectious, and those records still hold up today. So, Paul assures me, John is a super cool dude. Uh, he's he gone to the, he lives in Los Angeles. He's been to the Smell to see bands before. He's like, I'm gonna give John your number, and you guys can talk. So John calls up, and he's like, he knows nothing about me, and he's like, Oh, hey Dave, how are you? Hey, nice to meet you. I looked at your studio. I can't wait to work with you. You have some gear. I think you even have some stuff Duran used to use back in the day. And I'm like, hey, John, this is just a small 
home studio. I know you've worked at some of the best studios yeah, yeah. in the world, Capitol Records, Air yeah. Studio. And he's like, no, 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 man. No, it's like, I can record anywhere. All I need for you to do is press record and set up some preamps. And it looks like you got a nice piece of kit. Uh, you've got some nice preamps. I don't know anything about this sort of stuff, but uh, I, I just needed to be quick and record me. Uh, you know, okay. I'm going to send you the I'm going to send you the files, and this is for a very Catholic sort of horror film. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul's going to send the files uh, with the cues and just have them ready for me. So he walks into my house, and he is, you know, he's in the late fifties, but he's very like healthy and fit and so elegant he's he talks like you know like hey man like how's it going you know like british like rock star royalty zero attitude i know people that play that played spaceland back in the day that are more of a rock star <laughs> right yeah, yeah. yeah have more attitude about it yeah. you, walk, you walk into my room and he, 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 he well, all my records are there. He starts pulling out records and he pulls out this Zanakis record and he's like, Oh man, I love Zanakis. You know, it's like his stuff. And he looked at me and he's like, You're a real nerd, aren't you? You know, and he met them the best. Yeah, Zanakis is like avant garde composition. He pulls out a gang of four records and he's like, oh, I always loved these guys, but you know, they didn't really like the Durans and all back in the day. A lot of those bands, I'd listen to them, but they, you know, um, you know, he talks, you know, and we start working and I am on it. I am being a great engineer. I'm super quick. I get things going. And uh, we, we work that day. The next day he comes over and he's like, Dave, I looked you up online. I didn't know you played an LCD sound system. I didn't know you worked with the Melvins. You didn't tell me that because I didn't. It wasn't my job to be a creative in that position. Right. right. You know, I just thought what I was hired to do. Yeah, you're doing and the job. Yeah, later on in the day, he was like, yeah, nothing for this section. Do you not want to try something? So I broke out a lot of my Melvins, like, like harsh noise things. I started doing my feedback thing off of this contact mic thing. And he was like very encouraging. He was like, oh, man, I love it. What do you got for this section? And I started contributing for it. And I'm very good in the studio. It's like I can like cut, edit, EQ things so to make everything sound good. So what they record, I can make sound really good when they hear it back. And we worked a third day, and at the end of it, it's like, Dave, you did a great job. You know, I'm going to include you as a composer in the soundtrack. You did this with me. Top-notch dude. You know, I was not expecting that. And um, a few weeks later, he called me. I was like, hey, Dave, I was just thinking about you. I was like, whoa, this is crazy. He's calling me back. I thought he needed, like, something mixed better or something. He's like, right. you know, yeah, I think he was, he's like, hey, I'm in, like, uh, I'm doing this sort of TED Talks in Copenhagen right now, but when I get back, would you like to have lunch together? And and or something like that. It was some sort of, he was doing a lecture and all. So he came back a few weeks later, and we had lunch, and I'm back at his house, and we're listening to The Cure, and we're listening to Cavern of Antimatter, which is Tim uh, Tim Gain from Stereolab's band. And, you know, he's just like, hey, would you ever want to jam sometime? And I'm like, what? <laughs> Yeah, so that's that would be, might be okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'll clear my I'll, so I'll, find some, nice I'll clear my schedule somehow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you know, we wound up jamming. Paul was playing drums with us. There was this other bass player, 
and we jammed for, you know, maybe a, a couple of months and he got busy with Duran stuff. And, uh, but it was amazing. And it reinvigorated me to play guitar again. That's awesome. Uh, like I play guitar all the time. I sit down there. It's another way for me to meditate. Guitar, my main instrument. I love, you know, I also love using my 909 and my 808 and writing drum beats and then playing guitar over it. And then having some synth stuff, you know, writing complete songs. Right. Uh, I, I respect every band too much to do ripoffs of LCD, the Locust or the Melvins by trying to hybrid stuff. You know, it's like, Oh, I, how can I make, have a Melvin sensibility, which those guys would probably laugh at. Like I don't, I never expect anyone to like what I do, you know? Right. But you know, how, you know, I don't want to do a droney heavy metal riff thing to burn them. So I'll do that with electronics and the instruments I have, but, Playing with John, it was great to incorporate sort of the sound design stuff I did with the Melvins and Get Hustle, but also get into my rhythmic playing that I would do with LCD. And it would be intimidating. He played with Niall Rogers from Chic, and who I think is amazing. And and he's like, you know, John was encouraging to me. It's like, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's, I'm very, very lucky, you know, and that. I do consider him, you know, don't chase people. He's busy working with Mark Ronson and doing Duran stuff, you know. But I I feel like I have a good relationship if I see him around and all. And I can't tell you enough what a good human being he is. And I didn't say it enough how good human beings everyone in LCD is. Uh, everyone I work with are really, really amazing, focused, talented people. And someday I'll tell you about the stories of bands that it didn't work out with. Trying for Slint or Blonde Redhead or Cold Cave. <laughs> that, that'll have to be for uh, for the next edition, I think. Um, uh, Dave, I yeah. really appreciate your time. Uh, last thing I always ask folks at the end, if you've listened to the show, you know it. But uh, why do you do what you do? I do what I do now not as an identity, but using my skill set to be helpful and of service to others and try and create something positive with all this thing that I've spent so much time working on and trying to help people, you know, do like reach their vision. Like in the studio, I try and demystify the studio process. Right. I'm very open about how I do things. Um, I, If someone's interested in what I do, whether it is music-wise, recording-wise, any, if anyone has any questions about spirituality or recovery from drugs and alcohol, I'm very open with sharing that sort of stuff. Um, I'd, I really would like to create positivity. And again, this sounds hippie in new age, but just like, you know, even in the most vicious, hateful music you might do, you know, let me help you get there. Or if you want to make something, like, you know, helps the war, you know, like, you know, destroys the pandemic and makes everyone fall in love and feel never feel alone again, you know? Right. So, you know, it's, you know, I'm trying to use all my experience to bring something positive here, you know? Well, that sounds very laudable indeed, and it, uh, I, man, that's, uh, 
It's, it's been great hearing uh, all your call stories, me. and it's been really uh, cool. I know, you know, there's a <laughs> no, you, no, know, it's, that's... you know, all these tough edge, cynical, like hard edge people and stuff like that. I have that in me too, you know. You don't want to follow me if I if you if I were playing a show together to this day. Right, right, but still, I mean, I, I, I have a deep love for uh, an earnest response, something along those lines. As do many people that listen to this show, uh, and I don't know, man. Like, it's we, we all have different ways to move forward, and it's, um, it's gonna take a, it's gonna take a village, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, got to own, well, man. You know, I, hope, I, I hope everyone stays safe and healthy, and. They're taking care of themselves in this time period and they don't put pressure on themselves to do anything, but just survive it. And, um, we will get through this, you know, and I'm always there if anyone needs any sort of support corny, but true. And, and, and vital and vital. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much, brother. It's, I appreciate you. You be well. Okay. Thank you. And there he goes. Wow. That was the, Unmistakable. Totally awesome. Dave Scott Stone, everybody. That's uh That's a man with some stories. That's a, <laughs> that's a man with some with some rock and roll life that he has led. Uh cool guy. That, that, I'm, I'm glad he decided to do the show. Mm, the show that you have been listening to. This show is called Code of Neutrons Protonic Reversal. It airs on Radio Nope, radionope.com. Podcast it later, radioneutron.com. Patreon.com slash Protonic Reversal to get episodes of the show sooner. One dollar a month will get you there. Dave Scott Stone's all over the place. I, I, I guess that's true in a number of terms. I mean, he's all over the place on the internet. Mr. and Mrs. America, all the ships at sea. Bandcamp, uh, Spotify. On YouTube, he's, he's all over the place. He, he's, you can find him. He's he's playing in your band right now. <laughs> in the past and the future. Thanks everyone for feedback on the shows lately. Thanks for sticking with it. We got a bunch of cool stuff coming up. You know, stay safe out there. Can you hear me now? As always. Out on Route 128. Take it easy. I got my radio on. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now?
any color at all! Welcome to my top ten. I'd like to thank our sponsor. But we haven't got a sponsor. Not if you were the last man on earth. She was prepared to prove it. This one goes out to a special girl. It's the end of radio as we come to the close of our broadcast day. See?